You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Rob Carver, Mark Rysimczynski, Richard Brennan, Mart Siebert and I, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Today we're back with part two of our very special episode where we are all together for one big conversation and debate. As you know, this podcast series is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing, using the often overlooked but very robust strategy of trend following. We're recording on December 15th and this conversation and what you're hearing right now is the second part of this mega recording. So uh, if you missed part one, then make sure you go back and listen to that one first. Okay, so we got through the first few rounds uh, in last week's episode without too many bruises. So let's continue to dig into all of the topics that we each brought along. But before we do too much digging, I want to throw in a quick lightning round here where you have to do a quick sort of choice between two options and I'm going to read you uh, the choice just to hear your kind of uh, thoughts on that and that is would you rather trade 100 markets with one systems using 10 different time frames or would you rather trade 50 markets with three different systems using five different time frames I'm going to start with you Jerry what are your choice I'm always going to choose more markets two systems is more than enough uh, two systems is enough I could trade a lot more, but yeah, more markets, the better. How can I hunt outliers if I'm not trading as many markets as possible? So that's going to dominate my performance. You know, even if with multiple systems, uh, five, 10, 15 systems, you know, it may not handle the outlier optimal. One of, one of my, uh, the perfect parameter to get out of that thing, uh, the where I, you know, to maximize the profit may not even be one of my systems, but, um, I'll take it. I'll, I'll make, I won't maximize the profit necessarily, but at least I want to be in as many markets and as many outliers as possible. Okay, sure. Mark, what, what's your choice? More markets or less markets and more systems? I'll take, uh, I'll take uh, uh, more systems <laughs> and take just the opposite. And I always sort of think in terms of there's three levels of diversification. And I, I use the term STM. You want style, timing, and markets. So if I could have more than one style, a uh, couple timing, uh, different timing uh, periods, and then markets. And in some sense, I, I'll trade off and take a little less markets to get more of that style diversification. Okay, cool. Rich, what's, what are your choice? I know this is sacrilegious, Jerry, but um, I'm just thinking in this current environment, um, look, I personally think that diversification is never enough. So I hate this question because it's forcing me into a, a little sort of corner of the room. But I do like system diversification because it gives me entry and exit correlation benefits um, or uncorrelated benefits in relation to my systems. It also allows me to attack different segments of these outliers by applying different systems to these nonlinear features in the market data. So, you know, we might have a, a an outlier last for you know two years three years and by having these multiple systems 
um, by having a single trajectory over that outlier, you're, you're defining a trajectory of probability over that landscape. I prefer to, uh, to attack that outlier with multiple different variations of trend-following system to capture different segments of that outlier and give me the, a degree of sort of correlation benefit there. So, yeah, I hate being put in this corner. I'd like to say I'm totally with Jerry in diversify, diversifying across markets. However, because you forced me here, I would say that. But, yeah, I don't negate the wonderful benefits of cross-asset diversification. That's the most hedged answer I've ever heard, Rich. Anyways, fair enough. You got away with it. Moritz, I have a feeling which camp you're going to fall in, but let's hear from you. Yeah, I uh, I have a, I have that same feeling as you, but let's see if I can surprise you. I'm I'm definitely in the 100 markets camp, but let me let me try to explain why that is. I'm I'm assuming that I can really get 100 different markets. Um if if they're all from the petroleum complex then, you know, that I would change my answer. But let's say we really have 100 different markets, then that to me is extremely valuable. It is immensely valuable for my trend following trading system. Um, and I will get more benefit from these different markets than I would get from having more and more different types of trend following systems. So if, if I do a moving average system, a breakout system, a regression based system, whatever that may be, it will add some diversification on, you know, here and there in a given month. But over longer time periods, I'd say they all produce trend following returns. So they're, they're kind of like similar in what they do. So let's just say I'm, I'm doing a breakout system and I, I'm, I'm absolutely fine with just one, that one system. And I will then get diversification by trading that system, which I keep intact and unchanged, across different timeframes. There is some diversification there. But if you do three, four, five different timeframes, that is already pretty good. Um, I, I don't think you need 20 different timeframes. That, that is, is, is too much. I mean, I, I think that's adding too much complexity. And and I've, I've reached peak complexity, so I want to get down from that mountain and, and, and simplify it. But the 100 markets, if they're really independent and uncorrelated, that is worth a lot of money um, at the end of the day. And therefore, I'm in that, in that camp of 100 markets. Yes, no, I, you didn't surprise me, uh, Moritz. That's also where I figured you. So we got a 2-2 tie at the moment, Rob. Um, where, where, where are you going to... Well, you're, you're kind of the, the decider here. <laughs> wow. where, where are you going to fall? a lot of pressure. I must say, you guys don't really understand what quickfire round is, do you? But anyway, <laughs> I guess we'll edit your responses down to simple yes or no. So the answer is it depends. So if oh. I'm going from 50, from 50 to... Well, it depends on the question. The question is not clear. So I'll ask you straight out. Am I... These, these, extra, system, these extra systems, are they all trend-following systems or am I allowed to add other kinds of systems? Oh, that's a tough question. We are in a trend-following trend world, yeah. We are okay, in a trend-following world. If the, so they... if the extra systems are trend-following, then then I would go with with more markets. If they weren't trend-following, if I'm allowed to add something like carry or something like that, then I would. I think the the benefit I'd get from doing that is greater than the benefit I'd getting from going from fifty to hundred markets. Which because you know the extra fifty markets, they're going to help definitely, but they're they're you know there's already probably quite a lot of diversification in the fifty market portfolio, so. I think I'd get more benefit from additional systems. Within the question as it's asked, I'm on the market side. Well, it's good to know that you're on the side of Jerry on this one, uh, Rob. So um, Just this yeah. one. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, we're going to go on to uh, the next sort of round. Niels, of, uh, do you, that doesn't excuse you from having to answer that question. What, what oh, do yeah. you prefer? Good point, good yeah. point. Okay, He's so going to hedge himself. I, 
<laughs> no, no, I'm not going to hitch myself because I've kind of voted already. You could say, by the way, the trend following model that I talk about uh, every week is designed and it does have three, it has a bit more than three different systems. So I have to stay true to that and, and, and stick with the 50 markets, three systems and five different time frames, even if I don't use five different time frames. So we so do have a tie. Three all. Three all, yeah. <laughs> we still got a tie. Of course. Absolutely. There's only one way to settle this. This is the home. You can't see this, but I've I've just got out my boxing gloves. Uh, so uh, we'll just we'll just go out and settle it like men. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, well let's move on to a a topic that uh, Mark brought along, uh, and it was actually related to a topic that Rob also um, asked about, and it's somewhat related to actually a conversation that uh, Rob and I had recently with uh, Cam Harvey uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago on the podcast. Now, Mark wrote. Um, he calls it the skew question, which is a very good way of describing it. I cannot eat skew, only return. I can feel when volatility increases. How do I feel an increase in skew? And then Rob came along and said, just how much positive skew do we need? Inspired by our conversation with Cam Harvey, what is so great about positive skew? Question mark. I guess investors like it and it provides a hedge against negative convexity assets elsewhere in your portfolio, but in isolation, if you didn't have to worry about those things. Hmm. All right. So maybe I'll start with uh, with you, Rich, actually, since uh, you uh, didn't bring up this uh, topic directly. So um, how much skew do we need? Well, see, I, I view skew as an outcome of a process, um, a bit like returns. Um, so I don't view skew as something I assess on a day-to-day -day basis. It takes a thousand trades or more to sort of get this feeling for whether your your trade distribution has positive skew to it. But um, it, it it certainly over a large data sample tells me the efficacy of my process or the efficacy of my trend following models if I get this um, positive skew. So. I think it's more important than the short-term daily basis to look at things that contribute to skew, like what is your average loss? What is your average win? Um, what is your current win and current loss in association with these historical averages? So if you find that you've got a, a linear sequence of small losses and you get these occasional very large wins and your return to risk is very high and your uh, your win rate tends to be fairly low, that ticks the boxes that the outcome I'm going to achieve over a thousand or more of these trades is going to achieve this positive skew. But it is, it, it's an incredibly important aspect for trend following because this tells you, the skew basically tells you the direction um, to which it's either beneficial. So that's why when I use the term positive skew, I'm thinking of a positive thing, a beneficial thing. Um, it tells me that in in the sort of um, uncertainty uh, where you get sequences of these very large um, uh, skewed, skewed events, um, it's towards the beneficial side of our trade distribution. If we have negative skew, that's a negative thing to me. So that tells me the direction um, during uncertainty is a potential sequence of very large losses. So... Um, for trend followers, um, it's all part of our risk mitigation that we naturally, therefore, inherit this positive skew because we're cutting losses short and letting profits run. 
that philosophy, therefore, ensures that over a very large data sample, we get this positive skew expressed by our trades and it consolidates into our monthly skew, weekly skew or whatever. So um, it, the, the important thing for skew for me is it tells me where the non-linearity and the linearity reside in my distribution. So negative skew tells me that the non-linearity is towards the adverse side of my trade distribution and the linearity, the number of small wins, is to the positive side of my trade distribution. That's bad for me. But um, positive skew tells me that the non-linearity, the beneficial uplift or the step-ups in our equity curve, is to the, uh, the beneficial side of our trade distribution. And the linear sequence of small losses means that only in events such as Black Friday and only in events such as March 2020, when we suddenly get this massive correlation across all asset classes, normally our losses are linearly distributed as opposed to non-linearly distributed. Our profits are non-linearly distributed. So that's, that's how I view it. Yeah, no, I want to hear um, I want to hear your thoughts, Moritz, on, on this one, but I just want to inter interact one thing or insert one thing, and that is, um, I mean... Are we, or not we, but are investors who want us to also now have a certain profile in terms of skew? I mean, are there just too many wishes that we have to live up to in terms of being trend followers? We have to have a certain profile. And, and is there a risk that actually if there's too many of these things we have to live up to, we kind of lose the origins of, of, of trend following, so to speak? Moritz, what are your thoughts on this? I like the, the skewed outcome distribution that we have with with trend following. I cannot eat skew, but I know it's a, uh, a good thing for me. Think about the opposite, In, invert the question. If you had negative skew, then you know, you kind of like um, in this probably steady flow of small returns trickling in every day, every week, and then all of a sudden you have that nasty surprise and um, you're, you're taking out a business potentially, or you have a massive loss. I don't want to be in that situation. I really changed my mindset to be absolutely fine to work with messy markets day in, day out and take it on the chin day in, day out, but eventually hit the home run. And that is a different type of trading. I think it's a different style. Most people don't like that, as we know. We, we know that from prospect theory, from Kahneman, it, it's kind of like it goes against us. But um, I don't think that comes overnight to anyone. It is something that you need to really get get into your brain, get it chiseled in. And you can only do that by doing live trading and trading for a long time, I think. And then you can get there and just accept that. Yeah. I, so before I we... Therefore, skew to me is... I, I know my... I have a positively skewed return distribution. I'm very happy about that. But other than that, yeah, I, I don't I don't really calculate my skew um, number on, on a weekly or monthly basis and see if that has changed. It is not meaningful to me. So before we get to Rob and Mark, who brought these topics up, I want to hear from you... Uh, Jerry, if you don't mind on this topic. I love this topic. So um, I think uh, what Richard was saying is pretty darn scary. Yeah, do you really want... That's why I would stay away from convergent negative skew. That's why when you've given a choice, you know, Rob's question, if given a choice, well, if I'm given a choice, I'm going to trade all trend-following systems because I don't like what I hear about... Uh, possibly not being able to stay in the game if it's uh, negative skew. Um, but this is another example of how um, classic trend following got sort of, um, trying to be nice here, polluted by 
these ideas of sharp and vol and vol targeting in a sense that um, it's not, I think that the skew needs to be looked at from the trade distribution and not the return, performance return equity curve, because that's going to um, make you want to vol target and get rid of the benefits of trend following. The trend following equals positive skew, taking small losses and letting profits run. Black Friday wasn't a bad day for trend following because trend following doesn't pay attention to skew is not, the equity curve is not, you don't measure skew by equity curve. All those trades that sold off in my portfolio were huge winners. They had p- tremendously positive skew. So that was just letting profits run. So I think um, focusing on what's going on with the equity curve and trying to sc- uh, put skew into that um, once again, leads down this path of, well, I've got to pay attention to returns. I've got to cut profits short. I've got a vol target. And it takes away from what trend following is all about. I can see Rob is jumping for uh, for joy or maybe not for joy. Uh, he's got his <laughs> boxing gloves off again. So before we come to you, Mark, I think we need to let some of that uh, energy uh, out of uh, Rob on this point. point, point. I mean, I've made this point before, but I, I strongly disagree with the idea that we should be measuring characteristics based on trades rather than based on say, daily returns, um, because, you know, what you actually experience are the daily returns. Um, and the interesting thing about SKU actually is is it changes depending on whether you measure it on daily returns or monthly returns or even annual returns. Um, and in fact, um, trend-following trend systems, unless they're very, very fast systems, um, won't, will not necessarily have positive SKU based on daily returns. Once you move, but only once you move to monthly returns will you start to see them. But anyway, I've mentioned it before, I just have to you know, mention it again as Jerry, Jerry's brought the point up. Um, so I, th- I think um, going back to my original statement about why people like skew, um, the, the, you know, my, my ex-boss used to have a wonderful statement, which was this, um, running a positive skewed strategy is an unpleasant experience, but it's easy to risk manage. Running a negative skewed strategy is a much more pleasant experience, but it's harder to risk manage. And it's much more, so it's much more pleasant because basically 98% of the time you're happy because you're getting those positive returns. But it's a pain to risk manage because, you know, you've got those big, sharp, negative drawdowns. You don't really know how big they're going to be. That, that steady stream of positive returns encourages you to, it does, that's a situation where using something like sharp ratio is definitely very dangerous. I absolutely agree with Jerry there. Because, you know, the sharp ratio of these negative skew strategies looks fantastic. And then you're encouraged to, the, you know, the, the standard deviation of risk looks very low. And you're basically then encouraged to leverage them up. Um, and then and, and on the assumption that the worst drawdown you've seen in your back test is the worst drawdown you're going to see in the future. Guess what? It's not going to be. There's always going to be a worse day. And when that happens, if your leverage is too high, you, you are definitely going to get wiped out. So that's what I mean by negative skew strategies being harder to risk manage, even though they are on a day-to-day basis, a much more pleasant experience. Um, going back to my original question, you know, how much, you know, so for me personally, I wouldn't kind of, kind of grab as much positive skew as I could because you are there's a trade-off and I, you know you're always going to be giving up something if you get more positive skew so for example I'm not someone who would exclusively trade say um, a strategy that bought out of the money straddles uh, you know an option strategy because that that's a strategy that has amazing positive skew it's a superb positive skew but it's also guaranteed to lose you money 99.9% of the time and indeed lose you money over time so you know I'm not happy with that. Um, on the other hand, you know, on the other hand, would I trade a strategy with a sharp of 10 
with massively negative skew. No, no, absolutely not. I'm not happy with that either. I'm somewhere in the middle. We're all somewhere in the middle. It's just a question of where in that continuum we lie between those two extremes. Uh, everyone's preference is, 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 is a bit different, I guess. Um, I probably lean slightly more towards the I'm happier to have less positive skew in exchange for some other benefits than, than obviously some of you guys. Actually, if I can just um, mention something, because I think uh, Robert has mentioned an excellent point here, which I'm not sure if we touched on that ever on this podcast, but the positive skew that we're all talking about, and, and Rob has said that very collect correctly, it doesn't show up in the daily returns. If you you know make the time frame more granular, um, if you looked at intraday returns or any of that, the positive skew goes away. You kind of like see it when you look at end of month returns. You will see it if you look at quarterly returns. And when you then do a best fit, like an exponential spline or something like that, you see that thing starts to smile. Um, and, and that shows the, the skew, but you don't experience that positive skew, as, as Rob has said, on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, it, it's not there. It's not something that you can take to bed and be happy about. It's, 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 it's an artifact. It's, it's, it's a product that you can only realize and see at higher time frames, um, slower time frames. But that there is positive skew is kind of like, you know, what, what, what Jerry's favorite saying, which I absolutely love, one entry, one exit, one stop loss, with the initial stop loss being so important because it keeps the losses small and it keeps the upside open, that produces skewed returns, right? Because it, it forces the distribution into that, into that thing where, yeah, I mean, there is a body, a very large body of uh, small losing trades um, but like with a call option or a put option, it's it's the option premium that you pay to play. And in return, you get an unlimited upside with your trade, which produces the non-normality of the distribution. Um, and, and and that's what we're talking about. But you don't see that on a daily basis. No, that's a good all, point. All I would say there, though, is that fundamentally, um, you would look at skew at the trade-by-trade -trade basis because um, all sort of... Um, daily, weekly, monthly consolidations of that trade history are basically artefacts of that fundamental nature of skew that exists in the trade distribution itself. So, you know, I'd, I'd tend to sort of side on Jerry's side here and say fundamentally skew uh, is, is, is embedded in the daily trades and how it's consolidated in the, the daily, weekly, monthly, that's sort of window dressing or, or um, you know, just a different way to change that distribution through the method of consolidating your losses, sequence of losses, and your major wins. I want to hear from you, Mark, but before uh, we do, I just want to say that uh, I obviously understood Rob's uh, answer saying he wants to be somewhere in the middle as he was going to choose kind of a, a sharper five with positive skew somewhere in the middle of what the extremes were, but there we are. If if uh, if someone has a sharper five and positive skew, uh, please uh, tweet me now, uh, and I will give you all of my money. <laughs> Mark, they won't because they're trading that stuff themselves, as they should. Or Madoff, exactly. So the reason why I brought this uh, I brought this question up because it it really is very complex. I think that we love and we are very good at articulating the skew narrative that we can create option-like payoffs. We create nonlinear payoffs. Uh, this is that we'll have small losses and large gains. And then what you do is you go into the data and let's say you look at your, your monthly data and then you have to, uh, and you can you know run the statistics because it's the third moment to the distribution uh, without getting into weeds. 
and you get a skew number. And when you look at the uh, moments of the distribution, you always love mean, which is the first, uh, you always love the odd moments of the distribution, which is the mean and skew, and you hate the even uh, uh, moments of the distribution, which is volatility and kurtosis. But then you go out there and measure it, and then you get a skew measure. And then you show it to a client and say, well, I've got slightly positive and here's the S&P and it's, it might be slightly negative. But, you know, it, it's very hard to sort of say like, well, what does that mean? And if I give a, uh, and then if you look at the significance of skew, you know, as a statistic, it's oftentimes not significant. And, and there might be sl small differences between what is a slightly positive skew or more positive skew, what does that mean? And how do you translate that into numbers so that you can explain it to a client? And I find that very difficult. It's it, so I think we always talk about the skew nar uh, narrative and people you know, resonate with that, which on a trade basis, it's I hang on to my winners, I sell my losers, I create option-like payoffs. And then you look at the actual numbers, it's harder to then translate that into a number and say, well, this is good skew. Uh, so, so I guess I'd sort of say that there is an issue of trying to convert that into a number that you could talk to clients about. Partly because I think it's incorrect to use return, portfolio return as skew. It's not skew. It's, you need to look at the trades, individual trades. Right, but but people don't buy trades; they buy your portfolio, Jerry. So 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 if let's say uh, so so if I invest with you, I have to I give you money, and I get the bundle of all that you do, and that's what I'm actually receiving as an investor. Yeah, I agree, and they buy my expertise. But you know the reason that closed trade equity and trade skew and trade distribution is not used is primarily because the information is not readily available. You can't download it from a reporting agency that gives monthly returns. So we're going to use what we have, regardless of it, if it's good enough. Um, so that's, I think, a little problematic. But I would just say in commenting, too, that uh, I asked Richard about this on a podcast or, or on Clubhouse once. And uh, um, so I, instead of maximizing my SKU, which I think I could have maximized it by taking smaller losses, a two ATR, for instance, the old turtle system, two ATR, I sort of optimized for profit and came up with a much larger average, you know, uh, loss in terms of ATR. And uh, so I would definitely, uh, and he said that was okay. So I, I continued to do that after having done it for 15 or 20 years. So I think um, I would sort of, um, optimize for a better performance versus optimizing for skew. But it's like you said, you know, skew is just this outcome, this characteristic uh, after having decided how you're going to set up your system. Okay, no, very interesting actually, uh, and a great um, point to, to bring up. I think the next one is also quite interesting. We obviously, you know, this came from you, Jerry. It's something we've talked about in, 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 in different uh, ways. Um, but you brought up a good point, and that is that CTA diversification is not for the usual reason, namely diversification of risk, but for the hunting of outliers. So we're back to these outliers. Diversification is appreciated and reduces overall risk sometimes, but it's primarily 
for increasing the chance of finding outliers. Trading subsets of sectors versus all the markets in a sector is risky. CTA shouldn't stress too much over correlation. So why don't Mark, why don't you maybe throw in your views on on this thing where we kind of uh, turn the whole thing around about diversification a little bit uh, on, on this one? I'll just say that uh, before Mark takes off, I, I plagiarized this from Rich. Totally, you know, this is this is what Rich has taught me <laughs> since I met him over on Clubhouse and podcasting. So this is his idea. I think it's fascinating, and I remember Richard Dennis never talking about like diversification in the terms of having a smooth portfolio. It was just always like let's just trade lots of markets, and there'll be a lot of currencies and a lot of bonds and commodities, and they'll be correlated. And it's just this total sacrifice uh, to the God of outliers. And look, I appreciate diversification. It's wonderful. It's great. I have it. I have shorts on. We have more diversification than any other uh, hedge fund category out there. But it's for this reason. And we trade WTI and and, uh, Brent because something can happen in one of those two that's not going to show up in the other. Right. Diversification is very different when you're running a long, short portfolio and you're constantly uh, trading. And and I think the hunt for outliers is a variation on the theme of talking about divergent trades. This is that by by very nature, if you say, I'm looking for divergences in markets, I'm looking for mean fleeing activity in markets, those by their very nature are outliers. But when you talk about the hunt for outliers is, is that the hunt is not easy. There aren't going to be that many outliers. And, and I can sort of say that when you look at it through a lot of systems, you could trade a lot of markets. But a lot of times your profits are going to be sort of concentrated in just a few trades. Uh, a lot of your trades are going to be, uh, we'll say the majority of your tra- trades are going to be uh, small scratches. There's going to be some losses that, that you know you, because you hit your stops, and and then there's going to be a few of these very large ret- returns. But they're the hunt for outliers exists because they don't happen that often. Yeah, Rich, I'm going to come to you last because you uh, kind of is the godfather of this uh, idea and concept. I want to ask you, Moritz, um, have Rich's v- idea of of diversification is if we put it this way. Has that perhaps also changed, like Jerry, your way of thinking about diversification, or did you always think about diversification as that, you know, opportunity set increasing in your hunt for outliers? Um, both. I, I first of all, I must congratulate Richard for coining that outlier narrative and and uh, and really producing that. Which is when I look back at twenty twenty one, as we're you know getting close to the end of the year, is actually one of the things that I remember for the year. Um, I, I found it really cool, Rich, that you came up with that. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely true, nails it. And, you know, we had those years where other terms were produced, such as remember crisis alpha, and we had the year where it was convergent and divergent. Convergent and divergent, by the way, I like. Crisis alpha, I dislike now. I used to like that a little bit, but I dislike it now. The outlier narrative, I think, is fantastic. I like that forever. So this, is, this has made my year better. Um, I trade these markets, yes, because I do want to find as many outliers as I could possibly uh, find. Um, but I also don't want to disregard diversification. I mean, those 
uh, I can only maximize the chances of finding outliers if I'm trading independent uncorrelated markets. So there you have the diversification element. You know, those markets need to be uncorrelated, a diversified portfolio of many different markets. That is what's increasing my chance of finding the outliers. That's what I want to do. Cool. Rob, and I'll come back to you, Jerry, in a second. Yeah, Rob, what are your... Yeah, I mean, it's always important to bear in mind that the ideas like correlation and sort of the classical idea of diversification are all based around linearity. So, you know, the, the math, it makes the math nice and simple because if you assume that you've got a whole bunch of assets with some correlation, you can very easily say, you know, what, what the benefit will be from, from you know, allocating to a, a basket of those assets rather than to, um, you know, just, say, a few. And it goes back to the discussion we were having earlier about, you know, is, is 20 stocks enough? Um, you know, well, stocks kind of tend to move, um, you know, in, in a sort of linear ways a lot of the time. Um, you're not going long short. So the, the correlation structure is it's very different. It's a lot more linear than, than what we're dealing with. Because we're going long short, that, you know, that's where you get this, this nonlinearity from a lot of the time. Um, so... It's it's definitely the case. I mean, you know, so I myself spent a lot of the time, my time this year, trying to get to the point where I can trade those 140 markets, so I can have that ability to hunt hunt for those outliers. Um, and um, you know, it's it's definitely the the but the nice thing about the argument for me, at least, is actually it works it works well in both worlds. So even in the in the linear world, diversification makes sense, and the nonlinear world, diversification makes sense. Yes, the reasons might be different. Um, but you know the the, um, the 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 fundamental difference, I think, is that the benefits you get from going, say, from if you've got one one future in every asset in every asset class. So say you've got ten futures, and if you then go to twenty, thirty, forty, hundred futures, the benefits reduce in in linear space. The benefits reduce by the square root of the number of assets you're adding as an absolute maximum. And that would be if they all had zero correlation, which isn't usually the case. So you get to the point where going from, say, from the question we had earlier, going from 50 to 100 markets, the absolute most you can gain is 41% because 1.414 is the square root of two. And in reality, it's more likely to be a 15 or a 20% gain. But that's all on the assumption of linearity. The moment you move into non-linearity, um, you know, you could say, well, I've chosen these, say, seven, 10 markets. But those, as Jerry says, those might be the 10 markets where in their sectors where nothing happened this year. And you miss completely the markets where things did happen, um, because because of this nonlinearity. So so yeah, for once I think I'm on I'm on the side of of Jerry on this one. Jerry, you wanted to add something? Yes. Um, I cannot believe I forgot about another topic I would love to bash, which is crisis alpha. How was that not one of my questions? Ah, oh, what a horrible thing. <laughs> Uh, but not only hunting outliers. I mean, let's give, he added to our animal collection, cockroaches, turtles, and then recently spiders. What a great analogy that he had in that uh, podcast about spiders. I mean, it was amazing. I loved it. Um, another great thing, you know, about um, you can trade a bit larger. You know, I trade five units, whatever that means. But I can trade probably a bit larger the more markets I trade. It's kind of a, a money management uh, scientific thing, I think. The more diversification you have, the you can trade a little bit bigger. Uh, another thing that happens when you trade, I, I trade 130 markets is that even if I screw up and trade WTI and crude, and it's 99% correlated all the time, it's such a small part of my portfolio, it's really not going to show up. And so that's another great thing. I care about diversification and correlations, 
but there's a lot less worry when you trade so many markets that uh, if I just messed around and tripled my crude allocation, it wouldn't hardly show up on a daily basis or on any basis, unless there was a big outlier, of course. So that's really nice. I sleep so well at night uh, knowing that uh, I trade all these markets so small that nothing is really going to be that material unless it really, really goes a long ways. So after all that praise, Rich, and, and I'm sure uh, Rob is already contemplating changing the title of his next book to Haunting for Outliers. Um, what, what do you say to your new fan base here? Oh, I love it. Keep it coming, guys. Send me a T-shirt. <laughs> so, so, Rich, can I, and Jerry, can I ask you a question? Is, 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 is that if you're hunting for outliers, let's say you're trading 100 markets, how many outliers would there be in a given year? And how big does an outlier have to be to be defined as an outlier? All we know, Mark, is that it accounts for about 5 to 10% of our trades. We, and right. the thing about outliers or these anomalies is they're, they're unpredictable in nature. Um, we can't predict when or where, the frequency. And that's why diversification becomes so important as a primary mechanism to catch as many of them as we possibly can. Because where I think we've got to treat trend following and, and divergence is there is, it, there's not a sort of one-size-fits-all across convergent and divergent camps. Explicitly in this trend-following world, we are specifically targeting what we refer to as the tail regions of the distribution of returns. So right. our, our entire methodology is avoiding the noise and mean reversion of the bulk of the distribution of returns. Avoidance. And we do this avoidance by our long lookbacks. That long look back basically means price has got to do something a bit extraordinary before we even get interested in participating in these particular markets. So now that we've got that system rule in place, we avoid the bulk of trade activity. We only engage in price moves that we believe are material in nature. We're restricting our subset of, of market conditions to these these highly sort of um, non-linear conditions that are more applicable to tail regions and a Pareto distribution as opposed to the bulk that can be represented by a normal distribution. So therefore, smoothness is not our primary aim here. Our primary aim is these this beneficial non-linearity step-ups and our system risk mitigation is creating this linear distribution of small losses. So we're trying to tilt asymmetry towards beneficial non-linearity with only small linear sequences of losses. That embeds positive skew into it. That, that's the whole rationale or basis for our approach because what it engenders in terms of the underlying geometry of the uncompounded return stream of the portfolio is it engenders an uncompounded asymmetry or an exponential function as opposed to a linear smooth function that convergent methodologies need to target because they're trying to target maximum win, they're trying to target around an equilibrium. We're saying out in these tail regions, multiple equilibrium, there is no single mean, there's multiple standard deviations, it's exotic um, a, a frenetic world that we operate in, high volatility typically, 
But um, we, we, we want to engender this non-linearity into our uncompounded solution so that when we compound, we get this, this actual net wealth story at the end that is superior to a convergent, linear, smooth equity curve, if that makes any sense. Right. Now, now if I could just push on this a little bit, because when I was thinking about this outlier question a little bit more deeply, there are a lot of risk premium out there, and most of them are are in the, involved in sorting. What you do is, if I'm looking for value stocks or growth stocks or you know size, I sort you know, and then I I sort of always buy the high decile and sell the low decile. And in some sense, those are the outliers. So, is all investing us uh, variations on the hunt for outliers? And what makes trend following a unique hunt for outliers? And I'll just throw that out. I don't know the answer. I personally feel, I, I feel that trend following fits more into a camp of understanding markets as complex adaptive systems. I don't think terms such as risk premia do any help in our particular world that we occupy because these alternative methods of risk premium or whatever are associated with notions of, of causality. Um, we are very much more uncertain about what moves this price. We don't care what moves this price, but we do know that universally um, in these complex adaptive systems that there is a universal feature of mechanics in operation which can't be explicitly assigned to any particular cause. It could be a variety of different causes, behavioural, um, uh, tsunamis, exogenous events, endogenous features in the market itself. We can't tie it down to an explicit cause, which I think is problematic because when you start assigning something to a single cause, you're forgetting the, um, the notion of contingent multiple variables that influence a particular event. So if you're only focusing on a single cause like inflation or something like that, that sort of um, dilutes the efficacy of the event because that event might have been created by multiple contingent outcomes all affecting things together. So that's why if we look at things as complex adaptive systems and in terms of almost like the physics of mechanics in a complex market, we think that price is really only our only guide and it's the, the non-linearity or linearity of that price which is important to us and everything else is fluff to our cause. With a tsunami once in 2011, wasn't there a yeah, Japanese Japan, tsunami? Japan yeah, tsunami. Japan. Yeah. So, it, but, but once again, back to um, the whole idea that, uh, so like, I think trend following does well with these tsunamis, as long as you don't classify um, drawdown of open trade profits. Uh, we have a tendency to be able to keep losses fairly small, but you can't define a loss as uh, a drawdown, you know, I'm up, I've got a trade on that has a 300 ATR profit. Now it's 250 ATR profit and that's a 50 ATR drawdown. If you do that, then trend following can't be perfect in that way. But, um, you know, one of the problems is, is that in my portfolio, I've, I've made a lot of money in grains and some of the, and they're highly correlated. Some of them went up 50 ATRs 
and some of them went up 250 ATRs. So the correlation remained very, very high. And some of it is just, um, you know, some of the, the Malaysian palm oil, the bean oil, the oats. Uh, some of it's due to the ATR at entry being randomly, artificially, randomly low. I threw on a huge position versus the beans or the corn. But I think this is the dilemma. If we're looking at correlation, the whole portfolio is highly correlated, at least that sector is. But some of those outlier trades, you know, 200, 300. I mean, I have on Moderna, and the profit in my Moderna was insane. 500 ATRs, I believe, because System 1 got in when the ATR was 87 cents. So, but it's probably highly correlated with a lot of my other stocks that I made money on as well. So if you've got to sort of say, hey, I, I love the diversification. I appreciate it. It's great. I have more than anyone else. But if I'm not going to maximize that outlier, make that my tremendous focus and not and let these profits run, then you're just not going to make as much money. And except, which, which goes alongside that, when you go from an 87% ATR and you go to like um, 500 multiple of that, that is now a substantially larger position. And Jerry being Jerry, he didn't vault target or risk reduce that along the way every day. So, you know, he took that Moderna position like a football and ran for the touchdown. Right. So I, I'd be interested to ask Jerry and Richard, all of you, interesting question is, is that we have a lot of uh, equity people that that trade momentum. So, you, you know, and, and they'll come up with, uh, they could look at, let's say, a very large universe. They could sort and they're going to buy the, uh, you know, high momentum, sell the low momentum. Do you feel like momentum traders are kindred spirits with you? Maybe wayward children, but are they kindred spirits with, with, with you as trend followers? You know, probably not because I think first and foremost, uh, as the title of this podcast, we're systematic. One entry, one exit, a stop loss, maybe a couple more things. I'm okay with that. But if they're pulling momentum out of the sky and influencing some of their trades, but it's not a hardcore systematic uh, rules that they're going to follow all the time, they've done the back tests, it's robust, it's large sample size. Yeah, and they're doing this is that you could buy it as a swap. Let's say you could buy a, you know, a a swap on the uh, IWM, so the Russell two thousand, and I'm gonna, and so so they're they're and it's all rules based because it has to be in the form of an index. Are 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 they kindred spirits? I, I think that they utilize some inherent um, mechanics that we exploit as well, but I regard them as different beasts. The mob and the momentum camp that choose the top decile and lower decile, to me, that's imparting a bit of predictability into their method, which I would say I didn't really like um, because uh, the purpose of our, our philosophical, philosophical statement is that we don't predict, we price follow. Um, whilst people could say, yes, but the rate of change indicator in their momentum models it tells me that these are the strongest trending markets and uh, uh, these are the, the short trending markets with the strongest rate of change. Therefore, we should therefore bias our, our, our process to focus on those two segments. Uh, the, the problem with that is that with our trend following models, we are explicitly cutting our losses short. 
in our cutting loss, short and letting profits run, we, we are explicitly imparting this asymmetry into our outcome. With these momentum models, say, say for instance, they're using stocks, the, the top 20 stocks, because they've got $100,000 and they want to allocate 5,000 per stock. So they've got 20. They are prepared to risk the entire 5,000 of that equity uh, with that momentum move. They won't necessarily have a, a tight stop in their models like we do, which is um, to fundamentally create this asymmetry in our process. So they are, they're, they're, they probably are, uh, they're striking at the tail events, but with a different method that I don't think is as clear cut and as um, robust as our method. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, jump on to the next uh, topic, uh, which is somewhat related because, as we know, these uh, outliers we talk about, they often happen when markets uh, move, for example, if they're in a bubble. And, uh, Mark, you brought up a question in terms of, uh, you know, riding these speculative bubbles, whether we should even care that they exist and are they just uh, opportunities. And, uh, and also you kind of raised the question, so to speak, and that is given all this behavioral finance research that has come on stream in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 uh, years, 40 years maybe, whether the markets have gotten any smarter, uh, so to speak. So, um, Rob, you've been quiet for a few minutes. Um, do you want to do you want to do you want to have a crack at, at this one and, and give you a view? Yeah, I've been I've been quiet listening listening to the, these guys talking. is has been uh, letting it wash over me. Very very good stuff. Um, I mean, it's um, for me. It feels like this year has really been the year of the bubble, particularly in stocks, because we've had meme stocks, right? We've had GameStop. We've had um, Tesla to an extent. You could argue is the ultimate meme stock. Okay, it's a real company that makes profits, but but its valuation is is completely insane to me. So that you know, and it's driven really by sentiment, not by anything else. That to me, that classifies it as a meme stock. And then, of course, you've got the wonderful world of crypto um, and not just Bitcoin, but but some of the the other things. And we've got all these NFTs and and Moritz, of course, knows far more about the, all that stuff than, than I do, certainly. So I'll, I'll let him speak to that. Um, so it seems to say that that um, with all this behavioral finance research, the bubbles are less likely. I mean, I think within individual instruments, we, we're definitely seeing, you know, bubbles and you could argue you could argue that the S&P valuation is is pretty crazy high really right now you could argue the S&P is maybe a bubble so i mean bubbles are just one of those things about human nature that that never never is going to go away i don't think um and one of the best things about about trend following is is that um a trend following system is very happy to buy into a bubble and keep going and 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 not care that it's a bubble and, and just stay in it long past the point at which any person with any sense would would throw in the towel and say, look, this is completely insane. You know, owning Tesla at this valuation is completely and utterly insane. I'm, I'm not interested. The trend following system doesn't care about any of that. It just buys the stocks and hangs on, hangs on. The bubble goes on, the, on, the bubble goes on, the bubble goes on, the bubble goes on, it goes on, it goes on, it goes on. I mean, you could take, you know, other examples like, say, Japanese government bonds, which, you know, for, for as long, for my entire career, people have been saying we're in a bubble. Um, and, um, you know, the thing, when the thing, um, eventually pops because bubbles eventually do, maybe not Japanese government bonds, maybe they'll just, they'll just carry on forever. But, you know, when, when the bubble eventually pops, you get out. Um, and I think, um, as, as trend followers, um, probably we'd be even happier if, if, if every single market was in a, was in a bubble, um, because we'd be 
almost uniquely poised to kind of take advantage of all of these lovely, lovely, lovely trends that were occurring all over the place um, and hopefully not lose too much money when when uh, they end, which, of course, inevitably at some point they will, because that, that's almost the definition of a bubble. So, What about you, Mark? You uh, brought up the topic. Well, the issue comes in is, is that trend followers should be bubble agnostic. In fact, we love bubbles. This is that you could say, I love the bubble going up and I love the bubble coming down. Because because every bubble that goes up, eventually it's going to have to go back the other way. Uh, by definition, that that's defines the bubble. It has to be burst and and, and reversed. So so all the issue is is that, that can I get out? You know, maybe you're not going to get out at the top, but you're going to get out at at a reasonable price where you still you know sort of generate a fair amount of profits. And so it's it's interesting if if. And if more trend followers are exist in the market, well, then we're going to get more accentuated bubbles. And so, so it's interesting is that when people say like, well, the Fed or central banks are creating bubbles, we should love that world. We love those. Uh, we love central banks making mistakes that would create bubbles. And and is that good or bad? I you know from a public policy, that's a different issue. But it seems as though that. Uh, uh, Trend followers should be bubble lovers. So we should love the central banks doing what they do so well. <laughs> Excellent. All right. I'm going to continue to the next topic because uh, we've already gone an hour and we still got a few topics that we wanted to uh, to bring up. The next one also is, is quite interesting. Um, this one was from uh, from Rich and it kind of goes to uh, the topic of, of change in trend following you you wrote, uh, Rich, the terms used to describe trend following are changing. Traditional trend following has been seen as a naive, simple strategy whose performance has been described by behavioral models. But we're seeing a growing recognition that the simplicity of trend following is a superficial one. Hidden beneath the simplicity is a robust model that is capable of performing in highly complex markets. Today, we're seeing a change in emphasis in explaining how trend following works with the use of terms such as crisis alpha, outliers, non-linearity, path dependence, non-ergotic process, complex adaptive systems. Is this change in more complex quantitative terminology warranted or does it compromise the central quote-unquote simple message? of trend following. I'd love to start with you, Jerry, on this one. You, um, We've talked about narrative and, and stuff like that uh, a lot over the years. So well, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm going to wait for Richard to uh, correct me on this, but I, I can't, I don't know how I can continue to advocate for a one entry, one exit and a stop loss and try to describe it as something other than a simple strategy. Um, it can be robust. It can, it can be, um, you can dig, you know, Richard knows how to dig deep into these ideas and make them very thought-provoking and profound, but still, I just continue to uh, be encouraged to trade a simple strategy. And then uh, it reminds me a bit of the S&P buy and hold, which no one can beat, it pro probably because it's somewhat systematic and everyone trying to beat it is discretionary. And it's, um, it's in the public domain. Everyone knows how it, how it works, just like trend following which I don't think can be beat either uh, with bells and whistles <clears throat> and um, more than too many, too much more than one entry, one exit and a stop loss. So I think we're just in a bind here. Or I am where, where my conscience dictates me how I should uh, uh, trade and take care of my clients. 
and uh, I don't know how to, um, for not to describe it as relatively simple, I continue to trade more markets and I continue to add and I do a lot of work and it's really, you know, getting better and better all the time, but it's really, and, and then maybe psychologically it's hard to do. It's not simple taking these drawdowns and taking small losses and a 40% win rate. But um, other than really obfuscating and confusing people with hiring PhDs, I'm not sure uh, how I could uh, transfer over into a more complex explanation. No, that's fair enough. Uh, someone who spends a lot of time uh, putting words to paper that you, Rob, um, so narrative, I guess, uh, is a natural part of, uh, of what you do or at least what you think about. What do you think about some of these things that uh, Rich uh, has raised in this topic? Um, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of, well, a big fan. I'm happy to change to use different terms as long as they provide more clarity. So I think there 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 is a big is is the big problem with trend following that people don't understand what it does, or is it that they understand what it does and they just don't like it for whatever reason? If it's lack of understanding and using different words will help, then brilliant. I'm just concerned about whether some of these words or phrases, whether they really do aid in understanding or whether you'd spend more time trying to explain what they actually meant. So, for example, I'll be completely honest with you. I, I haven't got a PhD, which is why I don't know what a non-ergodic, did I even say it right, process is. I'm not 100% sure how, how, how path dependence, which I do understand, how path dependence kind of goes with, with trend following. Crisis alpha hunting for outliers yeah i like those there's a nice intuitive feel about them i think they will maybe not explain exactly what's going on but people will hear them and think oh okay yeah and they'll get a kind of mental picture that will kind of kind of uh, help them to understand the strategy better so so yeah I, i don't think we should be coming up with fancy terms just just for the sake of it or also to make ourselves sound cleverer than we really are right we don't want to be you know just just trying to kind of steamroll clients with with jargon just to think wow these guys must be smart because I don't understand a hell what the hell they're saying. Um, I'm going to give them my money just just to be on the safe side in case they really know what they're doing. I don't I don't think that's the path we should be going down. I'm sure that's not what, what's being suggested anyway. No, I think that that's a that's a fair point. Um, and coming from someone dressed as a reindeer today, um, I think keeping it simple, uh, hunting for outliers is uh, is probably uh, a good place to uh, to stay. I want to hear from Mark. I want to hear from you, Moritz, if you have thoughts on this. But of course, we need to hear a little bit from from Rich as well. He's brought up a lot of these terms. So, um, who, who wants to to jump in, or, or do we just want to hear what uh, what your experience is, Rich, in terms of this? I was going to say that there's an inherent need for investors to classify people in everything in hedge funds. You, you have to sort of say. How, where are you classified? You know, what's your peer group for comparison? And and whether we like it or not, that's the reality. Is 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 that because they, as soon as you go in to see a you know client, institutional client, they're going to ask the question, okay, what bucket do I put you in? And and the problem comes in is this is, is that uh, when you uh, at one extreme, if you have multiple models, it's a hard bucket to put you in. Are you global macro or you just you just called systematic and the problem is is that trend following is sort of considered an an old term and uh it's the correct term but it's the old term and people feel is is that that simplicity is bad and so i think that part of our job is is that uh uh we have to constantly tell people that we follow the kiss method which is keep it sophisticatedly simple 
that that there's a lot going on in trend following, albeit it can be described very simply. And why is this important? Because you have different people who call themselves trend followers, and in any given month, quarter, or year, they might have radically different returns. And that's that, that is uh, that's an interesting problem uh, from an investor's perspective because they say like, well, how do I pick which trend follower when I see that there's such divergence between the performance of one trend follower versus another? You know, what exactly is the strategy? And and I think we need to do a better job to describe who we are and what we do. Yeah, absolutely, Morris. Do you have a few thoughts on before we go to Rich? Yeah. Um, first of all, I think we're doing a very poor job um, when we speak about trend following and we use these words such as ergodic and non-ergodic because really nobody really knows what that stuff is. I mean, you, you can look it up and then you can obviously understand it and say, okay, I, I don't want to even explain what it is. I just looked it up. But, you know, you can use simpler words to describe the same thing. And I think that would uh, already help a lot of people to um, to understand it better. Um, what What I came to really dislike about the space was that you see these managers in a lot of websites and then they start with their philosophy and it's kind of like a full page website with their philosophy of trading and this that and the other thing and you kind of like you need to have that philosophy i think it probably takes them a month to come up with that wording uh, so that it's it sounds really nice whereas when you look at other websites probably the chesapeake website of cherry it says trend following plus nothing it has the ricardo quote there that's it and 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 th that that really is it. You don't have to call it systematic global macro and then create a story around it and say, oh well, I'm kind of like a macro manager and I, I'm now therefore long crude oil because um, there's supply constraints and these type of things. It's it's just a trend. The flip side of that argument is if you're brutally honest about it, and you just say, you know what, it's it's just trend following. It is really here are the rules. I, I can explain to you how that works. Then the people go like, well, that's too simple. I need something that's better. That that cannot work. That must be too simple. And and I need to look for something that has more alpha. And then they do that. Um, I'm not sure if there is a way out of this. I think it'll always be like this. I'm now looking at that since since years, and I haven't. I mean, have you guys seen it change? A lot of people have tried. Um, we're trying with that podcast. We're just, you know, saying the same thing over and over again. It's like, look, this is how this works. One entry, one exit, one stop loss. Uh, I mean, and still. I think people are greedy and eventually they may come around. They, they don't like trend following. Then all of a sudden, if stocks quit going up, we have another lost decade. Trend, trend followers and commodities do well. They'll miraculously be born again trend followers. I really dislike a lot of the marketing that goes on amongst the larger firms that, um, you know, they put in things like, I mean, you need, markets evolve, markets change. Uh, we're adding machine learning and AI, um, exotic markets, which, which I, I like exotic markets, but, you know, it's, it's all of this pretend. And so I stand up and I'm like, you know what? Uh, it's sample size, it's robustness. It's one entry, one exit and a stop loss. It's no vol targeting. Um, protect that closed trade equity. They don't like that. No, you have other people telling them they can have their cake and eat it too. We'll trend follow, we'll diversify, we'll hit the trends, and we'll have a smooth return. I'll take it. We all went to the same school. And so I like that part. 
It's not like, oh, man, finally someone is standing up and telling us the truth. No, it's the truth that they don't want. They don't like it. I, and, and, and performance doesn't matter. All these guys are tremendously underperforming, as predictable, uh, because they're not following the trends and they're t- cutting their profits short. And they'll, but they'll all go down in a flames, but never change. I can guarantee you they're never going to change. The clients are not going to change, and we're not going to change. I think that traditional, classic, robust trend following, you know, these days has like a $200 million maximum, whatever, whatever Mulvaney has under management, you know, thereabouts is probably the max that you're ever going to get to. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Honestly, I think it's fine to have a little small business like that. And I had two and a half billion at one point, but it was inevitably going to be short lived. All right. Before we get too uh, well, too far into uh, the the um, topics here, we need to hear from uh, from you, Rich, about your thoughts on this. That's clearly uh, sparked a lot of uh, comments. Yeah. Look, my thoughts are: I don't think the trend following community has done themselves any favors by uh, marketing the approach as a a, a simple approach. So. I think that trend following has been a victim of the economic circumstance since about 1950s up to about the 1980s. I believe that um, in that particular regime, the emphasis that all investors and all institutions and all quants paid attention to was basically the outcomes of Markowitz, Sharp, all of these aspects which... Uh, allowed allowed these these institutions to put forward these amazingly um, powerful mathematical models, which unfortunately had no um, resonance with reality. They are impressive models, but they didn't necessarily explain the alpha that was being extracted from their technique. I personally feel that the biggest disservices to the trend-following community has been industry's um, use of sharp, uh, uh, which is this sort of um, this baggage associated with this economic paradigm. And I also think um, we haven't done ourselves any favours by referring to our method as simple because what an investor or an allocator will do is, well, that's so simple, why would I need to pay a manager to do that for me when obviously it's such a simple strategy that my kids could do it. Um, So I want to invest in someone who can offer something I can't do. And therefore, you know, the two sigmas, the Renaissance technologies sit up there in lights. And yet there's this huge class of trend followers who sort of sit just below them, 30, 40, 50 of them, who, despite their long-term track record, hasn't got the airspace in industry. Why have they been left out alone, despite the fact that there is a class, a whole class of investors that have can produce this validated track record? The term validated track record doesn't even get a mention um, as far as an allocator's decisions, as far as I'm aware, because otherwise there'd be a far higher allocation towards trend following. So my concern is that 
I think now the economic paradigm is changing. Post-1980s with the Santa Fe Institute, the likes of Brian Arthur, the likes of um, Jean-Philippe Bouchard, uh, these people that can explain what we do in terms that recognise that there is, we require this simplicity to trade this complexity because it, it goes to work that people like Steve Wolfram's doing in explaining how very complex structures can emerge from very simple rules-based systems. And now we've got physicists and um, this whole sort of legion of, of diverse groups, biologists, etc., coming to this consensus that, that these systems are complex and adaptive and we have got a method, provided we can... Um, define it in the terms that express how the, our method is superior to other methods, we can then attract investors to us saying, ah, there is a reason why simplicity is good as opposed to simplicity is simple. And when we can sort of explain this argument in concrete terms that actually increases awareness by investors and allocators that there is a specific reason for uh, the models that we deploy, and it is far more nuanced than they might feel. For instance, we sit here together, uh, we debate these things. We're all trend followers, even you, Rob. But you know, you know, we, we debate these things, and um, that is highly nuanced. And yet, people probably, if they listen to us, say, "Well, you know, why is it so nuanced? Aren't they all trend followers? Isn't it a simple technique?" We know that these nuances matter. That's why Jerry stands there and argues a case for don't volatility target. And that's why, you know, we shout out, don't use Sharp, even though we've got Rob Sharp Carver sitting here in our audience. So these are the things I think are very important to change the narrative. Become more sophisticated because everyone else is becoming sophisticated. We're just going to get left back in the laggards, in the weeds of, oh, that's just a simple technique, unless we shout it out that, there is a specific reason now that we can explain how our method, our simple method, actually is very powerful in these complex systems. If, and if I could just add, I think um, not trading single stocks hurts the image of the industry because people love stocks and the performance is less. As I told you on the podcast um, earlier this year, Niels, uh, when I did the back test on single stocks, the big thing that stood out was um, no increase in performance. It was a decrease in the drawdown. And it doesn't always happen, but like I said, I had some shorts on Black Friday. Yeah. Or you could be 100% long almost every single index if you only traded indexes. So our credibility as a group that we, we pride ourselves in not trading single stocks, it's the most ridiculous thing ever uh, when, some of the, when those outlier trades uh, those 500 ATR moves are prevalent in stocks, and it's everyone's favorite asset class. I'm all for stocks. It's just not safe to trade them without trend following. And I don't think uh, if we sit right below Renaissance, I'm not sure about that, but I think another missed opportunity is what does this long-term classic trend following do? What is its one characteristic? When I did the back test, this one thing stood out that we've no one ever mentions, and that is it makes money almost every single year. So it has a really low sharp, but it's reliable. When I was in business 
when I first started Chesapeake, I think I had 10 winning years in a row. And with lots of drawdown and a low sharp, it was only when I got really successful that I started to try to improve, you know, uh, on just this classic way. And I lost my way. But I think that's another missed opportunity is who are the traders out there that substantive organizations that are committed to, to having drawdowns and maximizing outliers and letting the profits run without regard to drawdowns and OTE? Almost no one. So no one has picked up that advantage of, hey, we kind of suck, but we make money almost every year. And, and that's out there for anybody who wants it. Uh, but I don't see anybody picking up that mantle to where we could legitimately say, you know, we are a great alternative because, you know, once again, all we, all we need to do is be more consistent than the S&P. Well, that's a, a, a great debate, guys. Uh, very interesting uh, to, to hear your thoughts uh, on this and and by the way, uh, Rich, uh, you mentioned Jean-Philippe Bouchard, who's the uh, chairman of CFM. And uh, all I can say is that uh, we just recorded an episode with him recently, which will come out in early uh, 2022, um, so in a couple of weeks. And um, I will say it's the most high-level conversation I've ever heard. Um, I did not do the hosting for that conversation way above my pay grade. Um, but uh, yeah, an interesting one indeed. Now I want to do a quick round now because we've got still a, cu a couple of topics and and obviously we are running already at, at uh, an hour and 15. So a quick round just to give people an, you know, an idea of how the various um, uh, trading we've done so far this year, 2021. Um, what are the, what are the be what's the best market? What's the worst market in, in our portfolios? just to give people an idea of maybe that actually we do do things differently. Um, so let's hope we're not all going to end up with the same two markets. I'm happy to go first. The worst market so far in my trend following model this year has been the DAX, probably mostly driven by these short-term models. And the best market has been aluminum. Uh, so that's my part. Rob, what's uh, what's been going on? Best, worst market for you? Best market, soybeans, closely followed by the Swiss stock market index. Um, worst market, euro dollars um, and heating oil. Okay, cool. Rich? Best market, soybeans. Thanks, Rob. Closely followed by, get this one, the CAC. Wow. So it's done really well for me. My worst market has been the pound Swissy, followed closely by the New Zealand US dollar. Okay, fair enough. Moritz, what's best and worst? I actually don't have the specifics here, but I can tell you what okay. has worked really well. I mean, okay. you know, I remember the, the the gas markets and the power markets, they have been absolutely wild this year. So energy has been uh, a very good contributor to my portfolio. Uh, I do remember lumber as a gift that kept on giving. Um, actually, I'm now long again in lumber. The cryptos, man, we have to mention those nice digital <laughs> assets and... Uh, how nicely they can trade. So they uh, they were just absolutely fantastic, even though they're now going down a bit. Um, and yeah, commodities in general. I mean, I yeah, energies, grains, um, lumber, and digital assets. Those. Well, what about those the worst the markets? Yeah. What what what's been the worst for you this year? Do you remember? Ooh, probably some some currency. I'll, I'll I'll look it up. That's okay. The bonds actually, I didn't make that much money on the bonds. Fair enough. Yeah. But look, I, I overall, maybe maybe there haven't been that many really bad markets. Um, I, I had a great trend-following trading year, so I'm very happy about how it all worked out. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, best, worst market for you? 
Well, outside of Moderna and Tesla, they were the biggest. Uh, okay. Yeah. 400, 500 ATRs. Uh, rapeseed, 10. And by far the worst is cocoa. It has to be your worst unless you, unless you don't trade it. My gosh. I mean, it is just crazy how bad cocoa has been for so long. Yeah, I agree with that. That's been horrible. Mark, do you have any best worst markets? Yeah, natural gas and grains uh, on the best. And I'd say worst is, I would say is, I would say the one that's most frustrating has been bonds. Given when you see inflation and, you know, you, everyone knows I'm sort of a closet macro guy. And I also look at trends in macro data and that one is just, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head to understand the bond market right now. Okay, fair enough. I'm going to jump to the last two questions because uh, just in consideration of time. Um, and I think they're kind of good questions to end up with because they kind of relate to 2021 and 2022 as, as years. And these were, um, the first one was brought up by, uh, by Mark, really. And that's just, you know, what are the, the lessons we've learned in 2021? What's the biggest surprise for the year? And what is the one decision you wish you could take back in 2021? Um, so, um, and you also ask uh, yourself, uh, you also ask Mark the question about if you could give yourself sort of 25 years ago uh, some market model uh, advice. So if you don't mind, Mark, I'm actually going to start out with you. You raised the question you probably thought about these things what what's your uh, what's your advice to yourself and and uh, what what's your biggest takeaways from 2021 right. I, I think that uh, number one is 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 that for best advice is respect uncertainty and uh, you know just when you think I've uh, I think I've cracked the code and understand what what markets are doing I find out that I'm I'm humbled by uh, by their by what they do or don't do and and I think that that ties in with what's most frustrated is, is that if you go back at the beginning of the year, so we just, uh, we were just coming out, uh, out, out of the election, we were looking towards vaccination. You, you were sort of, we were making judgments about growth and what com uh, commodities, what other markets would do. And I don't think that uh, it was anywhere near what I expected when you look across the large number of markets is, is that, uh, so I'm humbled by uncertainty. Fair enough. Jerry, um, biggest takeaways from from this year, lessons learned, biggest surprise, something like that. What's your, uh, what do you, what comes to mind? I have to admit, I keep keep learning the same lessons over and over. But I definitely that the markets uh, humble me. You know, this is where it's all about. It's do the trade, buy the breakout. It's all about the markets taking over. When you when you make the big money, you just realize the only thing you really contributed was. Uh, uh, doing the trade and not not kicking it out of your portfolio, and so I think the markets are the heroes. And um, I usually, you know, a lot of what we've talked about is we're in a situation where we have we don't we disagree on, on on a lot of things, but it's usually surrounding when things are going really well and we're making lots of money. How do we handle that? And I like being in a situation where my biggest challenges are when I'm doing really well. I think it's good to remind ourselves that it's not really our fault either, that when we lose money, if we're following the system, um, <clears throat> because it usually is just gonna mean we haven't had those big trends yet and we just need to commit uh, to never giving up on the big trends. Sure. Moritz, what are your thoughts on this topic? 
I agree with all with that uh, with all of that. What I do remember, and that that is really so sticking memory from this year um, in in January when GameStop and AMC happened, and for the first time, really, you saw people meeting on Reddit and a community being built um, that was just driving markets crazy, uh, forcing the market's hand, if that's possible, twisting some short seller's arm for quite a while. And so this is a new dynamic that hasn't existed before. And it may be there to stay. When you look at where GameStop and AMC are today, I mean, they're, they're, they're still there. Tesla is kind of like in that group. I, I don't, I'm actually not saying that Tesla is necessarily overvalued because what's the valuation anyways? If interest rates are zero, you can justify an evaluation of infinity. But that, that was a new dynamic that hasn't existed before. Uh, that has uh, had implications on really everything. Um, the stock, the options markets, um, all of that. So I, f- I found that very interesting. I, uh, has nothing to do with my trend following system, of course, but it's something that uh, was just amazing to see. Yeah. Other than that, I just always focus on reducing unnecessary complexities wherever you can. Sure, absolutely. All the time. Rich, what are your uh, takeaways from uh, lessons learned? Uh, the su- biggest surprise of the year was the amazing uh, performance of the classic trend followers over the last 12 months. They have just lifted to the skies. Um I was also very surprised by, um, you know, whilst we may feel that we're trading uncorrelated portfolios, do not be under the the, um, apprehension that correlations can't change on a pen. And I think um, Black Friday taught me that lesson. Uh, But it was really just the same thing as what happened in March 2020 as well. These correlation just flipped. Um, But another big surprise for 2021 was Winton's announcement that it was coming back more to trend following, sort of starting to refocus its attention back to trend following. I've got to love that because I did miss them so much as they ventured out into that world of convergence, but then they've they've come back home, which is good to see. Uh, the, the, the things that I would have taught myself 25 years ago is don't attempt to reinvent the wheel. Use the track record of the validated um fund managers as a basis to make your assessment about which technique is the best or which to apply. Um, So stand on the shoulders of giants. Don't do all the hard yards yourself. There's huge experience sitting in this, these six rooms here across the world or or these five rooms. I'm excluding myself because I'm a very modest guy. There's a lot of um, uh, capability here that we can learn from and people should be doing that. The other thing is start young with trend following as your performance is measured in decades, not years, not it's decades. And don't be fooled by convergence. Despite the temptation and the lure, keep away from the things that Rob Rob does speak of sometimes. (laughs) And, And the other thing is embrace uncertainty and embrace volatility of your equity curve. Nice one. Uh, that leads it very nicely into you, Rob. Uh, what's your what's your takeaway? I don't know. I mean, I, I might be wrong with my math, but I think I'm about 25 years younger than Mark. So his advice effectively is advice to me right now. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, 20, I'm a bit younger than, than you guys, except for Moritz, of course. Um, so 25 years ago, the, the best advice to give myself would probably have been related to to women and which drinks to mix or not to mix. But but. Um, <laughs> If if I if I had to give advice to myself slightly, maybe twenty years ago when I was first getting into this this industry, I think um, you know the idea of 
um, understanding and uncertainty is is definitely right up there. That's a lesson I've had to learn again and again. Uh, and this year, I've also had to to learn again the the you know the what Moritz said about um, reducing unnecessary complexity. Um, I've added complexity to my system this year, but I've also taken some out because I always try and keep the amount of complexity you know level. I mean, I'm always trying to to look for things that can be can be simplified. Although I realize I don't always give that impression when I'm talking on the podcast. Okay, cool. So uh, yeah, for me, I mean, I'll, I'm going to keep it super short. I mean, for me, I guess it was this reminder of the power of simplicity, like Rich talked about. I mean, seeing some of these classical trend following models do so well in the last 18 months, I think that's been a great reminder. And the other thing actually is what we've talked about earlier today. It's turning this idea of diversification around a bit, because I have been a little bit hesitant, as Jerry kindly reminded us in, in part one about you know, how much value does, you know, adding another 50 markets really do. But if you think about it in, in terms of hunting for outliers, I have to, I have to say that, yeah, there's a lot of value in, in, in that. And, and that's really something that, um, I've taken away from, from this year. So, uh, so thanks guys for, for all of that. Now, final topic. Um, and I'm going to come to you first, uh, Rob, since you brought up this topic as a question. And that's uh, New Year's resolutions for 2022. Um, what uh, what do you have in store? Well, some of them are things from last year that I still haven't managed to do. So spend less time on social media is one. And anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I've, I've failed yet again to do that. But uh, anyway, um, I, I've got a book to finish. So that that's kind of a, a New Year's resolution stroke uh, ambition for this year, thing, thing I need to do. And um, yeah... I, I think um, last year I did a lot of stuff, and I like I really what really I really like was when Moritz said he spent a lot of time thinking about some changes he was going to make. I think next year I need to spend more time thinking and less time actually doing. I think last this year the ratio has been a bit unbalanced, and maybe that's because I I didn't really do much for my system for the last seven years, and I kind of made a lot of changes this year, but uh, perhaps didn't spend enough time thinking about them. So definitely more thinking and less doing next year. Fair enough. Well, inspired by Moritz's uh, approach, Moritz, what's your uh, any New Year's resolution, so to speak? <laughs> I don't have any yet, but it's it, it's not a recipe that I strictly follow, Rob. I mean, this stuff just happens when I mow the lawn and you know do, do random things, um, and then I start thinking about trading, um, as we do. Kind of weird, but I love it. I don't have any resolutions yet for uh, the new, the new year. I hope. COVID will get out of the way um, and we'll have a more normal setting around us, um, travel more easily um, and uh, see friends again more regularly. Just um, be a nice person and follow the rules. Have a good life. Yeah. Sounds fair enough. Rich, down under. Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm going to sort of follow in the steps of Moritz, I think. There's a couple of things he's clearly doing which I need to get my head into. So that's that's focusing on these emerging markets like China, crypto, digital assets, ESG, space technologies, all of these things. So I want to hunt for outliers, but I want to look at new novel ways of targeting more and more of these outliers. And the, the other thing I'm very intrigued by Moritz is, is the creation of these synthetic markets. So Jerry and, and, and myself on Clubhouse, we've talked about this at length, about spread trading. How, how, and Harold De Beer mentions it as well as a basis to um, generate these unique trending models that 
Um, so, so for instance, when I look at my portfolio, it's heavily denominated in US dollars. And that does therefore create increased correlations within my portfolio when things head south. Everything seems to be denominated in US dollars. I, I want to spread that and, 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 um, and at least it's gonna be research into those areas that Moritz has clearly got his head into and I'm, I'm always late to the party. By by the way, um, I think I, I probably need to give Harold a call about this. But when we when we had him on the podcast, remember I think it was Jerry Niels and I, and we spoke a little bit about these synthetic markets. My I don't know exactly what they're doing there at Trendstrand, uh, but I must say that I have a lot of respect for their their track record and and their numbers that they produce. Um, I I suspect that what they're doing with synthetic markets and the way they create these spreads is 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 different than what I do. Uh, I, I had a thing in my in my head that I wanted to implement, which is probably not what Transtrend are doing. Um, so it's probably a different thing. Yeah. No. We, cool. need, we need to bring Harold on, and the six of us just jump on him and um, yeah, you know, grow uh, a beard uh, first. <laughs> Absolutely, Mark. What are what are your thoughts? Uh, your uh, resolutions Wait. for 2022, if you have some. Well, during the pandemic, I probably spent a lot of time trying to learn machine machine learning and sort of new techniques. So, so you're you're locked away, so you try to work on the new tech techniques. And I do like from this conversation, other conversations I said is this is that you still maybe have to say how do I strip down complexity and move to simplicity. So it's always good to sort of say that uh, we'll call it the New Year's resolution. You want to clean closets. You know, sort of do do some housekeeping. The housekeeping would be say like, am I am I uh, am I going down the path of too too much complexity? And how do I how do I strip things down? Throw out some some of the excess. That's fair, Jerry. What are your thoughts for next year? Let's see, I'm going to continue my quest of adding more markets. I'm doing it by looking into different stocks and ETFs uranium, cobalt, lithium, um, rare earth metals. Uh, so just continuing to find more, hopefully different types of stocks and commodity-based stocks. And um, you know, I'd love to get involved in China. That may be something that's uh, too big a hurdle for me, um, the China commodities, but I'm really just going to continue to push, push to 160, then, then 200 markets. Uh, so I think uh, Quantica wrote a paper recently saying 200 markets is um, kind of optimal for trend following. Uh, but I've always, I've always liked uh, trans trend. I gave the spread trading a go. Uh, I'll never give up on that project. I couldn't make it work. But um, yeah, like I really, they've always been my favorite. And so, um, Maybe one of these days, the, the holy grail is spreading these markets and creating a thousand sort of indis, um, synthetic markets. Um, but I haven't been able to make that work yet, but I'm not going to ever give up probably. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think that's pretty much all the topics that we, uh, well, we had more planned, but uh, we also have some time constraints. Of course, we've been going also for part two for an hour and a half. So I think I'm going to wrap up this epic conversation that we've had for this year and it's going to appropriately end the year being published in the last two weeks of 2021, so to speak. 
I hope that you have enjoyed last week's part one as well as today's episode. If you did, please head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review so more people can find the podcast and make sure you follow the podcast as it's now called. And of course, make sure you tune in to uh, to the new episodes coming out in 2022, including a new series, by the way, uh, or a new uh, seg- uh, segment in the Volatility uh, series. Next week, we're back with the usual format, so make sure you join us. As usual, send us your uh, questions to uh, info at toptradersonplug.com. My sincere thanks to all of you guys, Rich, Mark, Jerry, Moritz, Rob. I mean, we couldn't do it without you guys. So my big thanks to you. Uh, and of course, to all of you who have been listening to us talking about trend following uh, this year. From Jerry, Rich, Rob, Mark, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.